Hey, Don. Hello, Zach. This week, I came across a blog by a professor named Freddie DeBoer, and he wrote an article called The Educational Standardization Trap. Mr. DeBoer has just come out with a book where he's talking about the myth of math. He talks in this article a lot about the standards that schools expect students to get over. He has a primary focus talking about like Algebra 2 and how difficult it is for a lot of students to pass that and how it sort of serves as the first gateway for students to get through school. But he then continues to talk about the other things that we ask students to do. He talks a lot about how there's a consequence. When we have high standards in public school, it leads to more dropouts. Here's the best paragraph I read. There's certainly nothing wrong with expecting that all students who graduate from a given school, system, or state have somewhat equivalent academic abilities. So what's the problem? To put it simply, students are not standardized. Their minds are not standardized. Their abilities are not standardized. Their ambitions are not standardized. Expecting to take the vast diversity of human academic experience and force it into a Procrustean box is a recipe for unhappiness. Education reformers love to talk about dynamism and innovation, yet they frequently push for standards that ensure education will involve anything but, and the consequences are clear. Do you have any opening thoughts about the paragraph or about the ideas that Mr. DeBoer brought forth? I think the both new and old critique of education is that it needs to be focused on the unique children that are in the classroom. Thomas Dewey, 150 years ago, said that we should be teaching students about their interests, their concerns. That's the way we engage them. And that's what we're told now is to engage them where they are, to find them. And society today as well is much more interested in how can we engage people and meet them where they are not ask them to come our way. And that is all the opposite of standardization. Really, if we wanted to teach students the best we could, then if they're into hooking, then we should get rid of the math requirement and instead have them do kitchen math with converting tablespoons to teaspoons and calculating baking and how much this will rise and how much of one product to add to the other. Ultimately, why is Algebra 2 necessary for everybody? As somebody who struggles with math, I wonder if I could have gotten through the Algebra 2 requirement. I don't believe they had that when you and I were in school. There's definitely been an increase in the number of standards that we keep bringing into society. One thing that I always sort of find interesting is we now have the common core standards that are on top of all of the various content standards that each subject is, is expected to teach in schools. Usually it seems like once we get the standards in, somebody's already arguing about why those standards need to be taken out and why these new ones need to, be, need to replace them. And it just to me seems like we, do, we don't even know as a society exactly what we want kids to be learning. And therefore, do you think this is just a value problem that we have as a society? We want to be able to have some sort of a bar. We just don't know what it is. Yeah. And it's everybody has different perspectives and people don't realize they're opposed to the new bar until it comes into effect and they're aware of it. And they say, wait a minute, this is not what we need. Do you think just the idea of standards alone are a good thing? Do you think schools should just be given an open table? Do whatever you want. All we're going to do here when the student passes through the 12th grade, we are just going to be giving certificates of attendance. There will be no standards, no grades that show any sort of mastery over any of the traditional core content. 
I think you need grades and I think you need some sort of essentials, but that shouldn't be too much beyond reading and writing and some math, right? But certainly not algebra too. Don't we have schools like Montessori schools where students are all taught based upon what they're interested in? It's student driven. It seems like a challenging, expensive way to run a school, but it seems like kids would enjoy that. Why are we forcing them into doing things that they really, really don't want to do? And by the way, if they're bad at it, what do they get? More math and slower math and less other electives like gym and so forth. So it's just a way to pile on the students that are already not very successful at school, which according to the article seems to be the reason that many of them drop out. I see students that have to go and get extra support in reading, extra support in math. And as you just said, it usually replaces time for, for gym, time for art, any of the electives that actually make school maybe feel a little bit different. You're right. What's the, what's the punishment? More of it. But I think there's also this fear. It's like if we don't give students extra remedial attention, then we're like leaving them behind or something. We're kind of saying, you know what? We know that you will never be able to do a lot of math. And therefore, we're going to wash our hands with you and, and you can go and pursue something that you're interested in. In some ways, if you're a student, you might say, well, that's wonderful, I'm finally being rewarded. But I guess as adults, do you think some of it's a guilt complex? We can't give up. Well, there is a couple of things here that to unpack. One of them is addressed when I went to culturally responsive teaching this past year at Oakland Schools, and they talked about dumbing down the curriculum for students that were likely to be non-white, who likely to come to poverty, and that we don't need to teach these kids the hard concepts because they're not going to use them. And I think that's a very, very dangerous place to be because if you don't challenge those kids, they don't have the opportunities to do all the things that are further on in education and in society. And so we have to keep in mind that we're not just going to play down to the kids that this is challenging for because they come from poverty and other disadvantages. So we do have to have that option out there, and we do need to challenge people, but I'm not sure we need to challenge them all with Algebra 2. I wonder if in some ways the, this article is talking a lot about is it's good to have challenges, but when people can't rise to meet them, we need to be prepared to not just fail them or to, to set them on a path now where they're more likely to drop out. He kind of talks a little bit about how there's sort of this contrast, right? If we have high standards, and he talks a lot about it with colleges as sort of the example. People go in, they complain that colleges have grade inflation everywhere, that people, the grade they earn is not exactly the grade they actually really earned. But the professor kind of wants to get everybody through or get everybody's report card looking good. But if we don't have inflation, then all of a sudden we struggle with graduation rates, which everybody complains about people taking way too long to graduate from college. So as a society, what do we sort of want? We don't really want to talk about this question, but if the bar is too high, we'll have more failures. If we have more failures, then people are going to be upset about that. Absolutely. And it can't be both problems. It can't be that it's too hard and we have great inflation. We can pick one. I know the easiest way to get rid of a student that's a problem is to give them an A. Nobody complains when kids get A's. Colleges face, I'm sure, the same problem. I'm sure they're pressured to give students better grades. But at the same time, a little of this comes back to other aspects in the article as well. There is no real STEM shortage. All my students at Lake Orion hear STEM, STEM, STEM. And that's where they're told to go. And I was talking to an Oakland professor a few weeks ago, and she was saying that a whole bunch of students at Oakland University are told to go to nursing because nursing is in demand. 
we need nurses and it's a good career, but they can't pass the math and science. So they try it two times, three times, four times, just accumulating more debt, but yet they're bound and determined to become nurses. And she, as their counselor, is saying, look, I don't know if you can do it. You've spent all this time and energy in this career path, but you're just not capable, which means, is it the requirement we need to change? Do nurses really need to know this level of math? Or do we want to tell people there's an, they can't do that? Where's the answer here? That was something I wrote down. I loved his paragraph about STEM. He just talks about the idea, as you just mentioned, that for a while there, it was like, oh no, we need more STEM in school. Just like about 10 years ago, everybody should have been learning Chinese. There's always some sort of new thing that kind of bubbles up that everybody decides this is what society needs, right? Just as teachers and schools were getting comfortable with the old standards, we start to push in something else that seems to be very timely. And usually there's an interest group behind a lot of these pushes. There's a lot of money to be made in public education, selling textbooks, selling computer software. It's always interesting how some of this stuff can kind of creep in. We, we then kind of maybe wrap ourselves in some sort of national push. We're falling behind. There's a STEM gap, right? And yet all of it is such a value-based statement. I think about you and I teach social studies. We teach history. We teach economics. It's always interesting when you find how people want us to be teaching history or economics. Some people want us to teach that all taxes are really bad and that we should just have a low marginal tax rate. Other people say, no, we should be having a high marginal tax rate so that we're taxing the rich and being able to provide more social services. It really comes down to what is your value. People want us to look back at the great society that Lyndon Johnson created. Some people want us to say, look, here's somebody who really tried to make America meet its ideals, whereas other people just say, this is a classic example of overreach by government and look at all the disaster. And you and I sit here at the middle trying to figure out, well, what is it we're supposed to be doing here? We've got two different sides giving us two totally different opposite value statements. And we've got to try to obviously come up with a lesson plan for the day, but it really seems no different than the STEM thing. And so how much of public school is just one large value statement by society? And is there any way that we can make sense of it, to move on to provide a more coherent education for kids, provide kids better opportunities for learning, for meeting their own interests than what we're currently doing. Well, I think that's the reason that everything is tested based upon math and reading, because they're fairly valueless in terms of you can't have too much of a political opinion one side or the other. You can either read and write or you can't. You can either do math or you can't. You can't just in economics and in uh, history, you can argue for one side or the other. It's a little more value-based. Ultimately, couldn't we just have a high, difficult, rigorous curriculum in five different things or 10 different things, math being an increasing or decreasing part of all of those? Just because we have multiple options doesn't mean one of them has to be watered down. Can't they all be challenging and take people in different places? I think that's what the Germans do. The Germans have kids take a test when they're in seventh or eighth grade, and then they go to a rigorous program where they learn how to be carpenters, electricians with high standards and very challenging, or they go to a university and they learn academic curriculum. But all the paths are challenging. It's just challenging in different ways. Couldn't we do that at the college level? You could, but you're now getting into that controversial area of tracking. The idea that based upon a student's ability on one test on one day, you're now sort of setting them down a road. And the one thing Americans don't like is closing doors. Even though the chances are slim that you could go and become a brain surgeon, 
we like the idea that you still could become a brain surgeon. And therefore, we continue to keep all the doors open and continue to give you a very broad-based education in case you want to circle back and go down that road. And yet, as you're saying, isn't this a lot of time and money that we're sort of wasting giving people, keeping everybody's doors open? We're pretending the doors are open. We're, they're not really open. Not all of us are going things. All like to believe it. We want to believe it. And we really want to believe in meritocracy, that anybody can do anything as long as they work hard enough. But ultimately, it's limited. And I don't know if you've read The Meritocracy Trap. The book is fantastic. It talks about this is a bit of a myth. There's very unlikely that people are going to be able to rise up beyond their humble beginnings. It does happen to about 10% of people in Salt Lake City, Utah. They go from the bottom 20% to the top 20% of the income scale. It's much less likely in most places. It's a 3% chance in Minneapolis. Generational wealth and privilege allows people to have assets, which will allow them to blossom in our situation. Best predictor of SAT and ACT score is your income level. And so if you have a high income, you can afford the tutors, you can afford the help, your parents have the time or the energy to work through all the exam prep with you and the difficult classes. It recreates what we already have, which are the ed highly educated kids have more assets going forward. We do offer kids the chance to rise up, but it's not one that many people take, but in a sense, we're forcing it on them. Like, you really want to try Algebra 2, not, do you want to try Algebra 2? It seems like what you're saying too, though, is that makes schools even more important. If public schools are the one opportunity that many people or all students get to get some sort of an education to help better themselves in, later in their lives, then we really should be thinking, what are we using this time for? This is something that's going to be provided to everybody, and what are we doing here? And in this article, we're offering a lot of general liberal arts courses, some of them quite difficult, as they talk about with Algebra 2. People aren't able to pass that, then they don't even get their high school diploma. If you're not coming from a family of privilege or of wealth, the opportunities to try to double down, as you said, get the tutors is much less. And if anything, it just makes schools even more important, and which kind of circles us back to then, well, what should we be doing there? Are there any common core standards or are there any standards at all that you could think of that every student in America should be learning or showing mastery of? We have a little bit of a skewed perspective because we're teaching at a middle school and high school level. At the elementary school, all the subjects are optional except for reading and writing. And if you're an early elementary teacher, especially in an impoverished area, like the one where I used to teach in and used to live, you're going to be teaching reading and math almost all day. And the vast majority of the time will be reading. And science and social studies is something you can do maybe once a week or once a month. The most important thing is for your kid to learn how to read and write. And there's accountability. And every three weeks, they're checking their reading levels. And that's something that we don't really understand because we assume that students go through their schedule of six or eight classes and every period is as important as the one before. No, it's not. In the elementary world, what's important is reading and math, and primarily reading. And at the high school level, we kind of say all subjects are created equal, or at least we like to think that in our heads. But ultimately, I'm not sure they are. And do we need to force everybody into everything? Reading and math is what I'm hearing you say. Do you think if schools were just set up to say, look, we are gonna be providing reading and math instruction, on a daily basis for the next 12 years of these kids' lives. The rest of the time is up for kids to pursue their interests. It's just gonna be all electives. Do you think that's a better way to go than also have the 
core requirements of social studies, science, STEM instruction, foreign language. Clearly, I think that uh, economics is important in social studies because that, that is something that I've poured my life into. And so, and it's part of the way I make my living. So I really want people to take that, but I'm not necessarily sure they have to. I mean, wouldn't it be nice if kids could choose three out of a four? I remember when I went to middle school, it was like, you're going to be able to pick your own classes next year. And I thought, fantastic. I am so excited to pick my own classes. I'm for sure not going to take math. And then we got the scheduling sheet. And it's like, basically, it came down to, do you want choir or band? Do you want <laughs> art or gym? That's it. Everybody's taking health. Everybody's taking math. Everybody's taking reading. It's like, this is not really getting to choose. And at high school levels, there's not that much space. And it'd be nicer if they had a little bit more choice. Although, what do we let them opt out of? At what point can you drop out of math? I know I didn't take math in college because I didn't have to. I did education for that reason. And I, then I also took education because then you didn't have a language requirement. I'm dyslexic. I'm not good at other languages. I'm barely good at this one. Can other students find paths that are out there? Should we offer more paths, less requirements? I'm not sure how this works, but as a student, I definitely want more choice. More paths, less requirement. I like that. I wonder, too, how much you and I have been institutionalized and that we still think of school as it's currently formed. And therefore, you know, we say things like, well, maybe they could, they could pick more electives based upon school. And yet a lot of those electives still kind of look the same as they did 50 years ago. A lot of those core courses still kind of look the same as they did 50 years ago. Maybe the instructional techniques are different, but ultimately the content is still the same. And yet I just kind of wonder about what is it that we actually do at schools? I might be able to draw a supply and demand graph. I can maybe write an essay about why the Battle of Thermopylae was a really important battle in history. But this week I tried to like add some stairs to my deck, four stairs done. And I don't know what I'm doing. I don't own a drill. My wife is just already nervous and I'm going to like blow up our house. And I had a friend named John, who's a brilliant builder who came over. I just asked for some like guidance. I think he took pity on me and was like, Larry, let's just start doing this. And within like 45 minutes, John had stairs built for me. John is a brilliant builder. He's also a brilliant construction manager. And all I can think is, John not only has a great academic background, but he's got real skills that he can apply to his house, to life. I'm sure he does all sorts of home projects. I never was offered any of those opportunities in school to, have, to learn how to build, use a saw, use a drill. And I'm wondering, like, why aren't schools trying to teach that sort of stuff? But so many things in life that are so practical, and yet schools don't take any time to teach those things. Well, schools are the answer to every problem. Everything that's going wrong in society, we put that in schools. So there is issues with health class. All right, well, health class, you got to tackle everything. So they get dumped in. A lot of social problems get dumped into health class, and students all have to take that. We have an obesity crisis, so we should do that with PE. With PE. So schools get assigned to fix all the society's problems. But at the same time, there are not many requirements. Now, let's think about this a little bit. We have some students that kind of go through the diverse schooling experience and make their way through. Then there's a whole other group of students that say, I am all in for STEM or for elite high-level colleges, and I'm going to take my economics class in the summer online so that I can get in more math, or I'm going to get out of, test out of gym so I can get more band. All these things are designed to get people on one specific pathway. 
on one way, I respect that. And the other way, and I say like, okay, you have total dedication to your pathway. Why don't we have more pathways like this? But at the same time, we don't want to fall into tracking because tracking is bad, but pathways are good. But aren't they the same? Well, I think too, schools are limited. You can only offer so many different sorts of classes or different sorts of paths. I do think you're right. We could maybe be a little more innovative about it. One of the hard challenges is just that teachers have to be certified to teach certain things. You and I always joke, the best investor and smartest guy we know about finances is not allowed to teach the investments classes because he technically doesn't have any like, the certification, an economic certification to do it. Yet his practical experience is there. That's one of the interesting things about school is sometimes your most talented, most innovative people that could really be inspiring kids to learn about all sorts of stuff in life are not actually allowed to do that because they just don't have a little check on their certification papers. Oh, absolutely not. And that's part of the licensing, but that's also our way as educators of increasing our compensation because we're going to make limits that keep other people out from our job. We both know that quality of teaching is not correlated with whether or not you have a teaching credential or a master's degree it's, or your number of years teaching. It's correlated with your ability to interact with students and engage them. Yet we don't want those people in the classroom because that would take away from our compensation. And so, yeah, we're going to protect our own. I think I could do a pretty good job teaching weightlifting and gym. I've been an athlete for quite a long time and I've coached a lot of different sports, but I'm not allowed in that world. Kind of respect that because now I'm protecting my own little spot and my own salary because I need that to pay for my kids' college and house and so forth as I am in my prime spending years. And that's what's sort of interesting about this whole article and debate that we're having this morning. These standards, we say that standards are for students so that every American child has become familiar with a certain body of content and knowledge across some core subjects. But do you think the standards movement is more about measuring us, the teachers, than really providing a bar for students? I think there's a gnawing suspicion by some people, and rightfully so, that teachers are just laying around and not doing their job and we have to hold them accountable. And then there's other people that are on the accountability movement because they said, well, kids got to be held accountable because I tried to do math with my kid. My kid couldn't do anything, and I'm really mad. He, what is he learning at school? So there is an accountability aspect there, but also we're all in this. So we all have our own little perspectives, and we're working to get the system to work just the way we want to protect our little slice of the pie. So it is multiple perspectives, but they've all found, hey, the system we have is working. Let's not throw it away. It's kind of working for most kids. But wouldn't you say Americans were very romantic about the idea of success and failure? We love when people succeed after hours and hours of hard work and determination, maybe some setbacks along the way, but eventually they make it. They, they get over the bar. We rarely ever see the other side of that, which is failure, because we don't really tend to like to talk a lot about that. We don't like to celebrate failure. And therefore, because of our love of succeeding and getting over the bar, what do you think that does to students who don't get over the bar? When we know a high school diploma is so important for 
people's earning potential in the future, people being able to have more doors open to them. And yet here's an 18 year old, somebody's still young, somebody's still making maybe some poor choices in their life, maybe somebody not mature enough to fully grasp what it means to have a high school diploma. We as the gatekeepers essentially are already now starting to select people who don't get to go through the gate. Now we could say, well, that kid, he did it. He didn't put any effort in. He didn't want to learn anything. But yet we know better. And this article even talks about how a lot of teachers do have empathy for the gate and do have an understanding of what it means in the big picture for these kids. Therefore, they start to inflate grades to help kids get through it. Do you think we as a society, though, are ready to deal with this idea of success and failure? You either make it or you don't. Because I feel like we're all good with those who succeed. And then the moment it's either us or our kids who are not succeeding, we then begin to blame the system. We blame the teachers. We blame unfair tests. Or we just say, well, this was stupid anyways. Who needs algebra too? Therefore, I just reject the notion of your bar. We as a society need to readdress that. Instead of saying, what do we want kids to achieve? Who do we want to get rid of? Who do we want to knock out? Is it the kids that can't pass Algebra 2? That's our limiting factor? Then who does that mean that we eliminate? Because we're looking at this from the side of who do we want to succeed or what do we want our kids to learn? But the opposite side of that is who are we going to knock out? And in this case, there are kids that can't learn Algebra 2, don't want to learn Algebra 2, aren't motivated, don't come to school, and this is the one thing that we can, that's knocking them out of the school. Something like half the kids that drop out, drop out because they couldn't get through Algebra 2. Ultimately, though, it's probably they don't have other aspects of their life that are in order that will help them succeed in terms of involved parents, in terms of reliable transportation, healthy eating, all these other things that make it more challenging for them to be Algebra 2. I know given my desires, I would dropped out in a heartbeat if I would, could have at seventh grade. But my parents were like, no, 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 no. you got to stay through and fight through this thing. But some people don't have parents involved. Some people are, are the parents for their siblings. It's ultimately those kids that are struggling the most. Do you think that that population should be given more supports to get over the Algebra 2 bar? Or do you think their bar should be lowered? Or do you just think, destroy the bar, let those people make their choice? We want to have high expectations in school. We want to challenge kids. We also know some people just won't be able to get over that bar. And now what do we do? Do we turn our back on them? Or do we just say, well, we're going to make up a new diploma for you. But we might all say it's not as academically rigorous as maybe we would like. Does that person's diploma still get to count as the same thing? I think you should have Algebra 2, fine, make that the first try. But if you don't make it, give them statistics. Statistics are just as important as algebra, probably more important because it has more bearing on our lives. That could be another way to pass through it. There's multiple ways to pass through the same door. You don't have to all do the same thing. At the NFL draft, they don't make everybody do the 40 and say, well, based upon the 40 results, our top 50 picks will be running backs and receivers. No, they say, all right, well, you're good at some things. You're better at other things. So you can take statistics to get through this. You can take Algebra 2 to get through this requirement. You just have to take something to, that is challenging and rigorous. Or, like I said before, you have different, you have Algebra in construction or math in construction, how to cut angles and apply them to framing a roof. Like, why can't that just be part of the math? Do you think part of this problem is that America is so diverse, it's got so many people, and it's got so many different values about what they think school should be, that we just can't decide on any sort of a bar. Therefore, we can't decide on just being okay with failure. 
as we've been talking today, I've been thinking about the ancient Spartans, which here was a small city-state in ancient Greece, but basically they had a really rigorous and brutal educational system. Kids were basically taught to sort of fight and, and work their way up through school in order to join the army as an adult. And along the way, the, the weak were just kind of weeded out and, and either killed or sort of banished from the village, and, and that was it. And the whole town seemed to be in on this way of raising their professional army through school. You either made it and survived or you didn't. And people just seemed to be okay with it. I don't think there were parents that were going to the school instructors and saying, you know, you're not treating my kid fairly. Everybody seemed to be able to buy into a similar line that people had to make it over. And if you didn't, you didn't. I just, I can't see our country, our society being okay with that. I feel like we're always gonna be looking for the end around to still helping kids get across the, the bar, but then that always seems to be bringing up these sorts of fights that our article's about today of, we should loosen standards. No, we should make the standards harder, and we should really pile on the consequences for those who can't get on the standards. And then you and I are just sort of left in the middle, and I just sort of find it hard to come up with our own philosophy about how should we be treating kids, and then also trying to think about that from what a school and what a community wants. So my understanding is that boot camp in the army has changed and their goal isn't to drive people out anymore. Their goal is to try to get people through. But if you read like books about West Point or books about boot camp, then a lot of it said like, let's drive these people out. Let's get rid of the weak because the strong will survive and we only need, want the strong. In a sense, we're doing the same thing, but we're trying to figure out how many people we want to drop. And again, I think we need to look at this for how many people do we want to eliminate? Who are the people we want to eliminate if we make this requirement or that requirement? And I don't think to the kids, the consequences of failure are clear. They're there, but they may be five years, 10 years down the road. In the first few years after they drop out of high school, maybe they're making as much money as the kids in college could doing whatever they're doing, working at the car wash or whatnot. It's when they're 25, when they're 30, when they're 35, that these compensation issues don't really rear their heads. And then the generational effects later with their children. Again, we have to look back and say, who are the kids we're ready to fail? Who are the kids we want to leave behind? But I agree with you in that I can't see our society saying, these are the people we're willing to drop behind because we really are attached to this idea of the kid coming up from nowhere to achieve greatness. You and I both read a book a year ago called The Case Against Education. It was written by an economist named Brian Kaplan. And I feel like the idea of this book kind of really hits home about what you and I have been talking about. American education is this wide ranging thing. We're trying to expose a lot of students to a lot of different ideas. We're trying to provide a bar where we are hoping that kids get over. We all acknowledge there's a bar, though, that some kids will not be getting over. Mr. Kaplan, in his book, kind of has this general point. School is a waste of time. The whole industry of school is a waste of time and money when you consider what we get out of it. First point he makes is that he does think schools provide a basic level of literacy and math skills. And you and I have been talking about that already. He can't argue against the fact that kids do come out of school with some literacy and some math skills that are important. But after that, he just kind of says, we know that transfer of knowledge or remembering or retaining any sort of knowledge that you get in school is pretty much lost by the time you leave school. We know that a lot of kids are bored in school, that they're forced to take a lot of stuff that 
they don't really find interesting or really find any value or meaning into them personally. And yet we make them sit through it. And his just thing is, it's a lot of hours we're spending. We're not really seeing a ton of return on that once students enter society. So therefore, maybe we should be dramatically rethinking what it means to have an education. My favorite portion of that book is, the labor market doesn't reward you for the useless subjects you've mastered. It rewards you for the underlying characteristics you revealed by mastering them. By showing, going through the rigmarole of school, we have shown that you have the dedication, that you have the analytic skills to really master something that doesn't matter. We want that skill that you have to master things. And that's what the labor market really wants. And in a sense, then, college is just maturation time. Like, we don't really care what you're doing as long as you're doing something for the next four years because we don't want to hire you at 17, even though you have tremendous skills. We want to hire you at 22. If we could just figure out who these kids were, then we could take them right away. But that is what the book is saying. If we have people with skills, why do we waste all their time doing, and money doing this education thing? He also brings up this idea of signaling, which goes with what you're saying, that nobody really seems to care what you learned in school, whether it be primary education or your college education. But the word signaling is really important. If you don't have a high school diploma, if you don't have a college degree, there are just so many doors that just remain closed. Doesn't matter how intelligent you are. Doesn't matter how well you can just kind of pick up something or learn something on the job training. If you don't have that degree, you just don't have the right signal to advance forward in the economy. And I just thought that was so interesting because he brings up this great question and he says, you can have one of these two things. You can't have both. Which would you rather have? Would you rather have a Princeton degree or would you rather have an education from Princeton? And I think that that really summarizes it, because if you think carefully, you'd say, well, boy, I, I want the piece of paper that says I went to Princeton, because the number of doors that will just be open to you immediately are, are large and numerous and in so many different fields. People are going to say, whoa, that guy, he went to Princeton. Very few people are actually going to ask you, what did you learn at Princeton or what, you know, what sort of education did you get? And the same thing happens with high school, too. We hear it all the time. Nobody really cares that much about if you can actually draw the demand graph, but they want to see that you have a high school diploma and that you sat through an economics class. Because then you're likely to show up at work. I have a good friend who graduated from Michigan with tremendous honors in engineering, and he's in charge of a lot of people now. And I said, how much of your college education do you use? He said, zero. Every day I use zero. I only use analytical problem solving skills. That's all I do is solve problems. And that is one that you, certainly you want the piece of paper because that's the one that gets you in the door. But it's the skills that keep you there and allow you to advance your career. Yes, you're right. School, having that ticket to sort of signal that you went to college, you went to high school, and it immediately says, well, this person showed up on time. This person had some resiliency in order to, to get through just the rigmarole of school. But I do think Mr. Kaplan makes just a great point of all that time, though. And it's a process that so many people just find arduous and, and kind of dull that shouldn't we be doing more? If we've got everybody as a captive audience, shouldn't we be trying to inspire them? Or do you say, no, a lot of life is kind of boring and it's kind of dull. Those who succeed the most out of life are able to just kind of deal with it. And therefore, school is really the first step to learning how to just kind of deal with life. It's not always Disney World. Therefore, get in your desk in school and start to get used to that idea. I think I find myself as a parent teaching this lesson more than anything else. A lot of this is showing up. 
going through, getting it done. You don't want to do it, you get it done. That's what it is doing the dishes every night. That's what it is doing your lawn. You're just getting it done. And that's what school and work is, showing up, being on time, getting your work done. I know I've been told that I'm an incredible teacher, mostly because I do what I'm asked to do. And I always think to myself, why am I incredible? I'm just doing what you told me to do. But apparently other people don't. I think I'm sufficient. But other people seem to think I'm great because I do what I'm told. But I learned that in school. Show up on time, do what you're supposed to do. And that's what schools do. And if we get a workforce, which our nation's workforce is fairly productive, then maybe we're doing something right. Our workers are productive. We, for the most part, get things done in our society. We have a very innovative society that invents a lot of things and makes cool products. Maybe we're doing a good job already. But don't you think that's just not very inspiring to just say school's about showing up and maybe if you're lucky, you'll have a teacher or two who can make you laugh or smile. Maybe they'll do an activity that kind of gets you to feel engaged in the subject that you already really don't like for that day. It just doesn't feel very idealistic, I guess. School could be more. School could be this everyday, 24-hour place of excitement and an innovation and engagement where people are excited to go. We got to rip the kids to get out of school because they want to be there so much because of how much they're learning. Or do you think that's just impractical? And no, this model that we've got is as good as it's going to be or is as good as it can be. Well, I think the coronavirus has taught, among other things, that kids do want to go to school. I think they actually missed it a lot more than they thought they were going to. But I think that it is what it is. I think that life can't be a nonstop fun fest. I know my kids are paying their butt to be around when they've had nothing but fun for three days, when they've been on a trip with their friends and they've got a new trampoline or they have a new toy and their friends are around, they're having a blast. And then when life goes back to normal, they're all cranky. Well, yeah, life isn't a nonstop roller coaster of joy. There's some hard stuff there. It's like when you first start dating the love of your life. Everything is perfect and wonderful. And it's still wonderful years and years later. But there's some stuff that needs to be get done in between. It's not just all hanging out and smiling and watching funny movies. It's parenting. It's running a household. It's life. It's adulting in my least favorite millennial term. But that's what life is. And maybe school teaches us how to do that. Yeah, I guess in some ways you could say maybe schools really have adapted and formed themselves to what society wants, which is trying to slowly put those sorts of ideas into kids' heads or at least behaviors of self-control. Maybe it's not very fun, but sometimes in life, it not being very fun is best for you. I guess just my, my final question then is, if we know school is not very fun, if we know maybe it can be boring, but it does teach a lot of implicit behaviors and ideas, do you think then that having a bar like Algebra 2 is acceptable? Look, lesson number one, school's not going to be that much fun, and yet it's going to teach you and it's going to signal to other people that you made it through, that you found a way to get through it. If that's kind of the first bar or the lesson that we're teaching in schools, don't you think then it's okay to have academic bars like math or, or history or any other of the requirements that schools give? The most important thing that schools teach is that it feels good to do well. It feels good to get something done and to achieve something. And when you finish a project, when you did it well, when you get a good grade, that is something that makes people feel good. And that's a sense of accomplishment. And that rings throughout life. I know when I finish something that I've set out to do and I get it done, whether it's AP grading 
or repainting my deck or adding or building something in my house. It's something that feels good to get it done. We learned to be happy that we got something done, mostly in school, when we got that project job, we did well, when we finished our homework. And getting to the point where you want to accomplish things and finish them is something that drives most humans. At least me, it drives. And so that's the biggest test of school. And if it's Algebra 2 that we want to make as a hurdle, I guess that could be the case. I don't think it has to be Algebra 2. I think we could do stats or something else like that and we can have alternatives just so it's not one ceiling that some students are banging their head into every single time. But it is teaching us to accomplish things and to learn the basic workplace, workplace skills that we need. I think this is an interesting article. I think it asks a lot of good questions. Just to kind of restate to our listeners, I'll have links to the article and the book, The Case Against Education, which we talked a little bit about at the end. And then what was the other book that you mentioned? Meritocracy Trap. All of these really good things. And I think if anything, I'm coming away today, Don, just saying, I really like my job. I I love interacting with kids. I love working with them. And yet, I think these are really hard questions to wrestle with. And anybody who is just certain about what students should be learning or having to do, I don't think that always just necessarily represents the majority of what society believes and thinks. You could be certain that you know what your kid wants to learn, but you want to reassess a couple years later. And when you look at other students, because it's not one size fit all. Like the article mentions, students are diverse. They have many different characteristics and many different needs. And I'm not sure all of them need algebra too. Well, hey, get ready, because if your child takes math, advanced math in middle school, you'll find yourself doing some algebra, as I have. And I've relearned a lot, and it's not as much fun as I remember. <laughs> it's called My Wife Will Be Doing That Part of It. <laughs> well, Don, thanks for uh, talking with me this week, and I look forward to talking with you next week. Sounds great. Take care. Bye-bye.